Jesus says, by this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. A couple thousand years ago, the great musician John Lennon seemed to agree when he wrote, all you need is love. Love, love is all you need. And that seems simple enough. Love. And in case you missed it, this past week on Tuesday was Valentine's Day. So for a little modern commentary on love, I rolled into Giant Eagle on Monday afternoon and grabbed a few cards. I thought I'd, I'd share a couple with you now. The story of our love is told in moments. Moments of warmth and tenderness. With you, let me know that we'll, that we'll always find home in each other's arms. Hmm. Moments of understanding prove we can work out any problem as long as we listen to each other. There are so many moments with you when I feel like the person I want to be. The person I was meant to be. I got another one. <laughs> Wife. God made love, it must be true. I knew it when I fell for you. I am yours and you are mine. What could it be if not divine? Heart to heart and hand in hand, living out the perfect plan. Happy Valentine's Day to the answer to my prayers. Last and certainly not least, the most romantic words that have ever been uttered. Let's get takeout. <laughs> I'll let you decide which one I gave to my wife. Listen, the reality is, it's true, I am a bit of a romantic at heart. I really am. I love a, a quiet candlelight dinner with my bride of 21 years. I like a good rom-com from time to time, draw whatever conclusions you want. But I think the bigger point is this, that a purely hallmark definition of love is totally insufficient as we seek to understand the essence of what Jesus really meant when he said that, the essential mark of the Christian should be love. So that questions remain. What does sincere, biblical Christian love actually look like? What kind of love did Jesus have in mind when he said those words? And, and importantly, in a day and in a culture where defining love is increasingly difficult and open and fluid, is, is it even possible to know? I am thankful, as in all things, that God's word gives guidance and clarity on this issue. So if you would, please meet me in your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 John. 2 John. John wrote three little epistles at the end of the Bible, if you weren't aware. So if you go to the back of your Bible and turn left, it's just past Revelation. You'll find it quickly. This is one of the shorter New Testament epistles that can sometimes be forgotten. And so this morning, even though it's only about 300 Greek words and 13 verses, we will look at a book that is loaded with meaning and encouragement for us. 1 John 2, and beginning in verse 1. The elder, 
to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use pen and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the very word of God, and we thank him for it. So in considering the nature, the essence, the application of Christian love, there is a little bit of context that we've got to cover here before we get into the text that will help us put the pieces together. First, we need to know that this letter comes from the inspired pen of the Apostle John. You'll recognize him from such works as the Gospel of John and 1 John and 3 John and the book of Revelation, and he identifies himself here as the elder then we have the recipient, and this is interesting, the elect lady. And let me tell you, there are pages and pages and pages dedicated to whether this is an actual woman, whether we know her name, or more likely, that this is a metaphor for a local church. And I'm inclined toward that understanding because John, first of all, is arguably the king of figurative language in the New Testament. You know that if you've read his gospel. Light and darkness, vines and branches, shepherds, doors, gates, the whole thing. And you certainly know it if you've read Revelation. But it's also interesting the way that he's writing this letter. The language that he uses also lends to an understanding that, that he's addressing a local church. The last piece of context that we need to point out has to do with setting. This letter was written likely near the end of the first century, near the end of John's life, which means the church would have also been coming to the end of the ministry of the apostles and their foundational teachings for establishing Christianity in the first century. And as we'll see later, what happened is it left an opportunity for false teachers and false prophets to creep into the church along with their false gospels. So with that backdrop, the stage is set. 
we see John, verse one, beginning this letter by expressing truth in love. Expressing truth and love. Verse one, the elder to the elect lady and her, ch- her children whom I love in truth. And I just love that phrase, whom I love in truth. And, and we can take that to mean a couple of things. First, it means that John loves these people truly. He really loves them. There's a sincerity. There's a genuine affection that he feels toward them. He expresses his joy as he sees many of them making progress in the gospel. At the end of the letter, you have this dear sentiment, though I have a lot to write, guys, I would rather see you face to face. I want to talk in person. That would complete my joy. John loves these people. It reminds me of Paul's words to the Thessalonian church where he writes, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Friends, the local church, this local church, is not simply a place where we come to exchange information or to consume services. It's a place where we literally come to give away our lives to each other. Not just kind of casually coming and smiling and nodding and grinning and ducking out as quickly as possible, checking the box, but but giving each other the gospel and giving each other our very lives. And I wonder, is that your experience in our church? And if it's not, why? And I know that there are not always simple answers to these kinds of questions. Many of you have good reason for skepticism. Perhaps you've been hurt or betrayed by a Christian brother or Christian leader. But at the very least, I think what we see opening here in 2 John is that God would help us to see the local church, this group of people, as the place where true love should be both given and received. What's more, though, even just in this introduction, is that John, like Paul, not only loves these people truly or sincerely, but he loves them, look at the phrase in verse 1, in truth. He loves them in truth. And this is really the emphasis of the text. Loving in truth. This is the kind of love that goes way beyond sentiment or superficial affection. Because Christian love is both grounded in and governed by truth. Even more, verse two, John goes on to say, I love you because of the truth. In other words, because of this fixed reality, because of this common share of Christ in his gospel, because of these beautiful historical doctrines of the Christian faith, I love you. Our friend David Jackman says, the special characteristic of mutual support And loving care among believers is rooted in the soil of truth. In other words, to truly love one another, we must love one another truly and in truth. And this is so instructive. I mean, you know this. I don't need to tell you that we are living in a day in the midst of a culture when you hear the word truth, that word is like a a lightning rod for controversy. 
For some with a, a more postmodern worldview, truth isn't something you can even really name with certainty. It's not fixed, it's fluid. Truth is more about individualistic self-expression or, or cultural contextualization. What's right, what's true for you is true for you, and that's fine, but, but what's true for me is true for me. You have your truth and I, I have mine. It's fluid. The idea of sex and sexual ethics is fluid. Gender is fluid. Financial integrity is fluid. And to speak of such thing in, in objective terms, in, in objective truth, is not loving or accepting. That's kind of the messaging. Right? I mean, it's naive at best and bigoted and even violent at worst. But friends, as tempting as it might be to give way on this, as much as this puts us as a people in a bit of an uphill climb, that is not the stuff of Christianity. It's just not. That is not the stuff of the Bible. Christianity is a faith built upon and upheld by truth. I love the phrase and the imagery that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3 when he refers to the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And to be honest, even amidst a lot of the cultural pressure that we're seeing about fluidity and relativism, I really am optimistic about the objective truth claims of Christianity and this idea of love expressed in truth, through truth, because of truth. Because Christianity offers something that squishy subjectivity just cannot offer. Christian truth offers us something real. It offers us something certain, something secure, something that we can actually build our lives on and count on. That is what it means to express love and truth. So having clarified his intentions, John moves next from expressing truth to, to walking in it. This idea of walking in the truth and walking in love. Walking. Look down at verse 4. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children, here it is, walking in the truth. Just as we were commanded by the Father. And now, dear lady, I ask, uh, not as though I was writing something new, but a command we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. The section feels a little bit like a puzzle. What's the commandment? How does it relate to love? How does it relate to this walking? Well, here John, first of all, expresses his deep encouragement by those saints who are walking with the truth and in the truth. And the emphasis, I think, and this is where we can really get an understanding of what it means, is, is in God's commandments. Four times in just these couple of verses, John uses that word, command, or commandments. We see it just as we're commanded, not a new commandment, walk according to his commandments. And that's really interesting uh, against the, the backdrop of loving and loving in truth. Because I know I do it sometimes, you might as well, when we think of the word commandment. You know, we think of the Ten Commandments. We, we sometimes associate that with a, a cold or a lifeless love. When we think about obedience, we think of duty and obligation, religious obligation. But through the lens of the gospel, 
Obedience takes on a whole new dimension. Think of John's own expression just from these verses. What is his default response when he discovers the obedience of some in the church? What's the response? It's joy, isn't it? It's great joy. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. The idea there to find something is the Greek word eureka. You might know it. When you find something that encourages you, eureka, this is fantastic stuff here. And I think this is helpful for us. Think about the Lord Jesus himself who Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see, for Jesus, obedience wasn't some dry, lifeless, loveless duty. It was his great joy. And his active obedience is essential to our salvation and imputed righteousness. And so I wonder if you just might, the next time you come up against the crossroads of obedience, in that moment, remember that obedience to God's command is not an exercise of lifeless piety or dry religion. It is an exercise and an experience of great joy. But there is another particularity as it relates to these commandments. What else might John mean? Well, functionally, what he's doing here is bringing it back full circle. He says, not to a new commandment, but returning, returning to that which is essential, namely, to love one another. There it is, verse 5. If you look at the front of verse 5, and now I ask you, dear lady, and you go to the end when he makes the point at verse 5, the end, that we love one another. This, of course, should come as no surprise, right? This is the essential teaching of Jesus when he is asked to summarize God's law and greatest command. He says, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we back away for a moment and try to to summarize what John has given us to this point, we might say it like this. The Christian love is expressed in Christian truth. And Christian truth exhorts us to Christian love. You see how it works. Christian love is expressed in Christian truth and Christian truth exhorts us to return back to Christian love. And this is wonderfully instructive as it relates to our disposition as Christians and our tone in the way in which we communicate the Christian gospel and the truth of the Christian gospel. In the same way that that love without truth leads us to kind of a shallow sentimentalism, truth without love can leave us brittle and bitter and cold and hard. John Stott says it brilliantly. He says, our love grows soft if it's not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it's not softened by love. In other words, Christian love is expressed in Christian truth and Christian truth exhorts us on again to Christian love. This is something like two really skilled dance partners performing a beautiful routine. I'm sure you've all seen the beauty of the dance, and I know some of you watch Dancing with the Stars. Don't lie. I know you do. So we have the the beauty of 
and the artistry of this couple's dance. Each person is, is playing off the other. The, the movement is so beautifully coordinated that sometimes you're not sure who is who and, and where they're going next. There's two dancers, but their synchronization is so precise, it's almost like they're one unit. This is like the interplay between love and truth in the Christian life. Truth and love are not enemies. They are dear friends. They are like the the left foot and the right foot of the Christian walk. You could get from here to there by hopping on one foot, but boy, it's a lot more effective to use both feet, the feet of truth and love. And listen, our culture right now is communicating a story that you as a Christian or as a person are forced to choose one or the other. Think about it, right? You're either a truth person or a love person, but you can't be both. But the Bible does not force us to make that decision. It just doesn't. Just the opposite. And this is so refreshing, I think, and so informative as we think about the really serious issues that that you and I are facing in our communities, in our families, This means that if you have a child who is struggling with their Christian identity, this means if you have a friend in your life who is experiencing same-sex attraction, you're not forced to choose only love or only truth. This means if you have a difficult neighbor or a difficult coworker or a difficult spouse even, that you don't have to choose to deal with that situation using only truth or only love because the Bible gives us a better way. You may not be a good dancer. You may be dealing with two left feet, but by God's grace and in Jesus Christ, it is possible because Christian love is expressed in Christian truth and Christian truth returns us and exhorts us to Christian love. So John has given us the initial expression of love in truth, loving in the truth, and then he's kind of broken down through the obedience of commandments, how to walk in the truth and love, and then suddenly there's a shift, and it's a really important shift. He turns sharply toward a big problem for these believers and in this church, and he shows us the necessity for guarding the truth guarding the truth, guarding it for love and guarding it by love. Look at verse seven. For, very important word here, by the way. In other words, based on what I've just said about loving each other and walking in the truth, for or because of walking in the truth, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who don't confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Things just got very real. Imagine reading this letter for the first time. Even though John is overjoyed, overjoyed that some in this congregation are walking in the truth, he is equally dismayed by the many deceivers who have gone out. And for John, this is like super, super serious. He goes so far as to call these false teachers and false prophets deceivers and even the Antichrist. They are literally anti-Christ and the presenting issue is that they 
are denying Jesus Christ come in the flesh. It's good for us to know historically that in the early centuries of the church, issues of Christology, that's simply the doctrines of Christ, were probably among the most significant issues that Christians were trying to deal with, the most significant false teachings. Now, you might ask fairly, what's really wrapped up into that? I mean, what's the big deal about denying Christ in the flesh? Glad you asked. Denying Christ in the flesh means that we deny the incarnation, John chapter 1. It means we deny something called the hypostatic union, and that simply means that Jesus Christ, fully and eternally God, took on an additional nature, human nature, along with his divine nature. So you have one person in Christ with two complete natures. Shilin says it so well and so poetically in his song. He says, Jesus, both God and man, 200%. And this doctrine really does have a ton of applications as it relates to the gospel in your life. Think about it. If, if Christ didn't come as a flesh, if he didn't come as a person, he could not have died as a substitute for people. He could not have died to pay the penalty for the sins of people. If Christ hadn't come in the flesh, he couldn't serve as the perfect mediator between God and, you guessed it, people. If Christ hadn't come in the flesh, he wouldn't be able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, being tempted as we were, yet being without sin. This is a big deal. We could go on and on. And here's the point. Here's the point. What you believe about Jesus, the person of Jesus, is really really important. It's like the most important thing, actually. You cannot have God, John says. This is a huge claim. You cannot have true spirituality. You can't have God apart from the person of Jesus Christ. And those who were were peddling this nonsense in verse 10 were not even to be received or welcomed or shown hospitality by the church. This is serious in a day when hospitality was essential. Whether John is talking about private hospitality in people's homes or perhaps more likely the public accommodation in a venue like this in the church, the message is still clear. Don't receive these antichrists and to even greet them in this way, you would be guilty of taking part in that wicked work. Guard the truth. And John presses even a little bit further. This is interesting. He doesn't just say to guard against false teachers. He also says, watch out for yourself. (laughs) Look at verse 8. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. For whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Watch out, Christian. Watch out, church. That's what he's saying because the danger isn't only out there. The danger is very much in here. Having received God's free and full gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the call of the New Testament over and over and over again is to persevere. It's to keep going. It's to be 
diligence to confirm our calling and our election, 1 Peter 1. And within this section of the letter, there are a couple of phrases that really help flesh out some more meaning. First of all, that little phrase in verse 9 goes on ahead. Everyone who goes on ahead does not have God. What does that mean? Well, certainly these false teachers have denied the humanity of Christ, but they are also attempting to bring people beyond Christ in a sense, and his foundational teachings. It would be something like, yes, you need Jesus. Yes, he's important. But what of the secret knowledge that I possess, by the way, and I can, I can show you? I mean, if you really want to be spiritually attuned, if you really want all of who God is, there is so much more, so much more out there to be found. But John says, watch yourself. Watch yourself Don't become so mature that you grow beyond Christ. Because, folks, Christianity without Christ is not Christianity. Now, for us, maybe this is a little more subtle. Maybe it's a a mindset of Jesus plus something equals true spirituality. What is it for you? You know, if I have Jesus and just enough good works, then maybe I'll get full spirituality. Then I'll get God. Or if I have Jesus plus some conservative politics, then I've really, then I've really got God. Or if, if I have Jesus plus some, some liberal and progressive ideology, then, then I'll really, really have him. No, John's point is that the essence of Christianity, the essence of spirituality, the way to God is through the one who called himself the way and the truth and the life, the Lord Jesus himself. The second nuance in verse 9 that we got to pay attention to is this, this phrase, abide in the teaching of Christ. So the person of Christ, but also the teaching of Christ. The word here, the word abide means simply to continue. It's a word that you've heard Jesus use before in the New Testament when he says, abide in my love. And John here is exhorting us to abide in the teaching, the teaching of Christ. It parallels a bit of the commandment language that we saw earlier. This is certainly the teaching about Christ in the gospel, but it's also all the teachings of Jesus. Here John is talking about this ongoing and joyful submission to Jesus in our lives. I imagine that a lot of us here are, uh, are square on the incarnation and on the hypostatic union. Maybe you didn't even know you were, but now you know. But what about continuing? What about abiding in all the teachings of Jesus? Because to confess Jesus as the Christ where to confess him as your savior also means to submit to Jesus as Lord. And this is where the rubber meets the road for Christians. I thought about this last week, maybe a couple weeks ago now, when I was sharpening my kitchen knives. I've got a thing for for sharpening kitchen knives. That and rom-coms. Put that together and, you know, whatever. But, but I love a sharp knife. It's kind of a, a weird therapy for me. And when you sharpen a knife, you typically run it across a whetstone or a flint. 
And the most important thing, though, is that the flint has got to be harder and denser than the knife itself. And if it is, when you apply that even pressure to the knife edge, what's happening is you're actually grinding away these little microscopic metal shavings from the knife. You're grinding away and grinding away and grinding away. And what's happening is that the knife gives way to the flint. And this is really what happens to every Christian at some point in their life. You're going along your merry way, thinking you've got a handle on what's true and what's not true, and then boom, you run head to head into the flint of God's word and God's truth and God's commands. And in that moment, you've got a decision to make. Will you continue to lean in and allow the flint of truth to grind you down? Not always comfortable. Will you allow God by his spirit and word to conform you to Jesus and to his teachings? In other words, will you abide? Will you stay? And I know as a, as a Christian, as a man, as a person, I, I know how difficult this is, right? I mean, we're navigating spiritual and personal temptation we're navigating a lot of talking voices from very different worldviews and very different perspectives. We're dealing with spiritual attacks and not to mention as it relates to the topic of the morning, loving and truth, sometimes people, sometimes I am really, really hard to love. So how do we do it? How do we abide? How do we continue? We went over it pretty quickly, but, but I wonder if we might return to the simple greeting in this letter. Verse one, the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. In verse two, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Friends, when the truth of the gospel comes to us in an effectual way, we receive it by faith, that truth then abides in us forever. The spirit of truth, as Jesus calls him often in John's gospel, regenerates our hearts. In other words, he brings us to life He then indwells us and that spirit of truth empowers us to believe and obey from the inside out. This is the resource that the Christian gospel offers. Not only an exhortation to love in truth, but the power to actually do it. I'll leave you with Jesus' own words from John's gospel in John chapter 16. This is so encouraging. He says this, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the answer. This is how we abide. 
because he's abiding. This is how we continue. The spirit of truth, think about this. This is like mind-blowing. The spirit of truth this morning is preaching the gospel to you. The spirit of truth is declaring the truth of John's second epistle, that Christian love is expressed in Christian truth, and Christian truth returns us to Christian love, and he's empowering us to do it all along. All of this is possible, all of it, because of what God has done in Jesus Christ and by his spirit. Brothers and sisters, his truth abides in you forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good and true and inspired and authoritative and perfect words that your spirit has spoken to us today. He is declaring Christ to us even now. He is declaring the truth of Christ to us now. May we have ears to hear. May we have soft hearts and wills to obey. I pray that those who are here who perhaps lead on the foot of truth and maybe only truth sometimes, may you give us, Lord, the wisdom and the humility to soften truth with love. And for those who perhaps hobble uh, along often on the foot of love that needs to be strengthened and firmed up by the truth, I pray that you will give grace for that. Father, thank you for indwelling us and abiding in us by the Spirit of God. I pray that he'll continue to empower us to love one another in truth. And I pray that you would help us to grow as a bold and a courageous people who stand upon that which is real and good. We believe in you and we trust you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.